0: Let me open us with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the family of God, for the body of Christ that comes alongside us, and I thank you for the privilege we have of being a part of Lakeside. Lord, that we can come alongside and encourage and care for hurting brothers and sisters is a privilege we have. And we pray this morning for our sister Janetta. With the loss of Joseph, we thank you, Lord, that after his brief but very intense suffering with cancer, that you've released him from that pain and that he is with you. But for Janetta and Josiah and Jewel and the families, it's going to continue to be difficult for a while. So I pray that you would help them feel the comfort that comes from you in these difficult times. And for... Us, Lord, I thank you that we have the privilege of being here today to hear your word taught. And I pray, Lord, that we won't just hear your word, but we'll actually be able to hear it with understanding and we'll be able to apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray for me to be able to speak clearly. My mind is not as sharp, Lord, but it's not me anyway. It's you and the power of your spirit. So I pray that you will enable me to to think clearly, and to communicate the truths that are found in your word. And I pray for Pastor Steve as he prepares to preach this morning and this evening, that you would give him great wisdom and insight and clarity as he preaches, and that you would enable all those teaching the word of God today to speak by the power of your spirit and give us ears to hear. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we... Last week began, uh, resumed our study of First Peter, but we find ourselves in First Peter verses 17 to 21. We've been going verse by verse through First Peter, and last week because it had been a while, I gave a, a brief overview of where First Peter was, and I'm just going to emphasize today the overarching issue. Peter was writing to struggling believers. When I say struggling, I mean in a literal sense, these were believers who were enduring great hardship for their faith. Some of them were being persecuted. Life was not easy for them. But Peter was writing to encourage them and challenge them and tell them how to press forward, how to keep going. And a couple of weeks ago, we taught, or probably a month ago now, on verse 16, which says, It is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Ultimately, Peter is calling us to a life of holiness. Everything in the book about how to live for the Lord is really centered around that. If you're walking in obedience, that is holiness. And so, Peter began in the first Twelve verses or so really emphasizing the privileges we have. Even though life can be difficult at times, for these believers originally and for us today, going through hardships isn't an indication of, of something horrible. It's an indication that God is caring and working. In fact, God's giving you an opportunity to apply your faith and to live out your faith. Hardship shouldn't be a source of just pure lament. They actually should be a source of rejoicing along the lines of James. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. But after those first 12 verses where Peter was just stating great theology, then he gets into application and he starts at verse 13 with changing how you think. Think rightly. And then he gives the command to be Holy. That's in verse 15. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And as I indicated last week, when we get into verses 17 to 21, really it's just a, an elaboration, as it were, of what holiness looks like. I'm going to read verses 17 to 21, and I've got a four-part outline. Last week we carried the first two points. I'll go over them briefly. But it's important to see verses 17 to 21 in the context We're supposed to think differently, we're supposed to live differently, and verse 17 to 21 carry out this thought. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ." For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. As I indicated, really, these are an elaboration of living appropriately, living godly. And I broke it down last week when I started talking about these, and I just took the text, even though there's only one imperative command in this section, the reality is I think these are motivations for living a life of holiness. And I broke it down into four motivations for living a life of holiness, and we covered the first two last week. The first one, quick review, was the fear of God. That's the first motivation. And it comes from verse 17. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. And as I elaborated in more detail last week, really, you could restate this first one, this first part of the verse, because what it's really saying is this. And since you pray to your Heavenly Father, and since you pray to your Heavenly Father, and your heavenly Father sees everything in your life, live in reverent fear of Him. You can't just casually call on God's name and then just live flippantly as though His word is irrelevant and as though He is not intimately concerned with the details of your life. The writer's making this clear. If you're a true child of God, this applies to you. You are praying. I know without question, we're not praying enough. None of us ever do. I think that's the easiest way to guilt trip somebody is just say, do you pray enough? Because we all fall short. But the reality is, we all pray and the writer is saying, look, you're praying to God. You ought to live in fear of God. Not cowering in a corner afraid like a horror movie, but rather in reverent fear as though the God of the universe, in all His glory were standing in front of you at all times. And of course... Even though we don't see Him, He is. Because we have His Spirit indwelling us. And He sees everything on the earth, including even the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And the writer says, look, think about these things. You, you can see how it always correlates. Think differently. One of the ways you think differently is to recognize that we should live in fear of God. Again, not in holy terror, but in reverence. Now, we aren't going to be ultimately condemned for our sins if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. That's unequivocal. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 1. But God does discipline His children. If we're habitually walking in sin and not repenting, God will restore us through discipline. And also at the ultimate judgment of believers, there's going to be rewards passed out and what we've done and the motivations behind what we've done will be sorted out by God. So the writer is just saying, look, because you pray to God and because God is paying attention and because ultimately your behavior is important to God, live in fear. Don't live in the absence of God. Live in the presence of God because that's where you are anyway. We're only on the earth for a short period of time. And the writer Peter is saying, do this. The second motivation by way of review is focused on the price of redemption. The price of redemption. And this comes from verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter is appealing to knowledge that was already possessed by these believers. He's not pulling something new out of the cupboard and saying, let me unveil new truth to you so that it will change things. No, he's saying, look, you already know this. This is something that you already should be aware of. And as I elaborated a lot last week, I won't do it this week, it was borrowing a picture from the common practice at that time of slavery. Being redeemed was how a slave was freed. And he was saying, you've been redeemed from your sinful life, the life that you inherited like every other human being after Adam and Eve from your forefathers. And at the time of the writing of this letter, that futile way of life would often have been accompanied by pagan beliefs and practices that were handed down generation after generation after generation. But he was saying, look, you didn't come out of that life because of something as foolish as money. I mean, money is nothing. It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God borrowing Old Testament imagery. A sacrifice had to be a perfect animal. You couldn't bring your lame and blind animals. You couldn't get rid of the worst of your flock before God and expect Him to accept it. It was only the perfect. And Jesus was the only perfect human being who ever lived. He's the only person who was able to live a sinless life. And he's just reminding them with imagery that would have been very potent to them, look, you were freed from a life of slavery. And it wasn't by anything as bad as money. Not just gold or silver. It was precious. And what that is supposed to do when we've already slowed down just a moment if we have and we're thinking of the reverent fear of God that we should have, it reminds us the price that God was willing to pay to redeem us. And it should cause us to be grateful. And it should change our life. In Romans, Paul said this, verses 17 and 18, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Really, that's what Peter wants for us. He's just saying, this is how you live as slaves of righteousness. So that was a very, very brief review of what we covered last week. As always, the teaching here, and it's a blessing if you don't realize it, the teaching is always recorded here in Faith Builder. So if you miss something or you want to hear something again, normally you can find it on the website of the church. So we have four motivations for living a life of holiness. The fear of God, the price of redemption, and the third motivation is the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation. And this comes from verse 20. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Now, these verses make some very sweeping statements that at first blush might not be there, but you could write theology books about the truth that are found in these verses. But we need to always remember this. I'm going to talk some about it. But we've got to remember not to lose sight of why this is here. When you read this verse, in some way it's supposed to help you live holy. In some way, when you read this truth, it's supposed to help each one of us, including me, walk in obedience. And to do this, what Peter does is have us step back for a moment and look at the sweep of human history up to the point of where we're living. he says, for He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, obviously, the He is Jesus, the perfect, spotless, sacrificial Lamb. And this is not new truth. This is truth that's taught elsewhere in Scripture. And the overarching point is that Jesus as the Savior, Jesus incarnate as a man walking on the earth, the God-man, laying down His life as a precious, spotless, perfect lamb, was not an audible by God. Super Bowl Sunday, you got to throw a football analogy in somewhere. (laughs) This wasn't plan B. This wasn't God going, wow, I didn't see any of this, now what do we do? Right. He was foreknown means that God knew beforehand, but it's not a statement that God just looked down the quarters of history and wondered what was going to happen. i got to tell you, these types of scriptures... When you stop and reflect on them, they really stretch our ability to think. In fact, they show the limits of our finite mind, even indwelt by the Spirit of God, because there are aspects of it that we can't fully comprehend. If Joseph Smith were here this morning, he'd probably understand it a little bit better than we do. But even then, I don't know that in heaven we'll fully comprehend everything. But before the world ever was... Jesus was the spotless lamb who would one day take away the sins of sinners. In Acts chapter 2, some of the earliest preaching was this. Men of Israel, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, Just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. It's the same basic truth. God always planned, God always knew that the third person of the Trinity, excuse me, the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, would come to redeem sinners. Even the sinful acts of the wicked men who lied and distorted justice and nailed Him to the cross, even those wicked acts were a part of God's plan. Again, it all shows, this isn't a case of just God looking down the corridors of history going, I wonder what's going Oh, I see, I see. No, no, no. Not at all. Not even a little bit. God is the author of history. This is what God ordained. This is how God chose to orchestrate all of human history. And the foundation of the world obviously is talking about creation in its entirety. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God created. This is before that. John one. One, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being before all that. Before all that, God knew and God ordained, and this was God's plan. Now, this is where we've stated the truth. Peter stated it. We see it on the sweep of human history. But Peter's expecting us to step back and look at the eternity as much as we can with our finite minds and say before anything this was what God was going to do. For He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But there's a so What? This isn't just knowledge. Believe it or not, this has to do with our daily struggles, our daily walk with the Lord, those times when we're stumbling and falling, when life is hard, sometimes because of external factors, sometimes because we're not as sanctified as we should be. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, the second part of verse 20, but He has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. And obviously it's addressing what you think, the incarnation, when Jesus physically came to the earth as a baby and grew up and lived a perfect life and validated everything about His existence through miracles and then He died. And what Peter is doing is he's saying, you can look at this sweep of human history and it's personal. Now, the word you here in the context is talking to the entire church. It's a plural form of you. But if you know Jesus Christ, it applies in the singular. These are the types of thoughts that stretch our minds. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the verse is almost incomprehensible. Before the world ever existed, before sin entered into the world, before the history of humanity laid out in the Old Testament developed, or the New Testament, Or before your great-grandparents or your grandparents or your parents. Before any of that, God already had a plan for you. For you personally. He knew the sins you were going to commit. He knew how weak you were. He knew your failures and your shortcomings He knew how hard your life would be, how rebellious you would be towards Him at times. And He sent Jesus to die for you anyway. You look in the mirror and you can't believe it. That's the motivation. God loved you. Does He love the church? Of course He does. Does He have a general love for all who bear His image? Of course He does. But He loved you personally. Paul states it this way in Ephesians. Chapter 1 beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love... He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. This is the motivation when we stop and we think how much God loved us. I think sometimes it's easier to think of God's love applied in a larger sense or in a church setting. To look around and say, Well, it's great that God loved all these people, but we have to come back and look in the mirror and realize if you know Christ, God loves you. He cares about you. He wants you to be able to walk in victory, He wants you to succeed. He cares about you. He's not callous or indifferent. And remember, this was originally written to believers who were struggling. And I know in our little body of Christ at Lakeside, we have a lot of struggling believers. And let me tell you something that puts it all in an additional context. Satan's original plan for destroying humanity is to make people think that God doesn't care about them. I'm not going to read it all, although it's in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Actually, I am going to read it. I changed my mind. It's here. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. We all know from understanding it, he distorted what God had said. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Verse 5, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Paraphrasing it, Eve, God's holding out on you. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. He's keeping you from something. I mean, you've got the world by the tail. You take this and you're going to understand everything. God knows you'll have a better life if you do this. He wants you not to have it. Can I tell you? Satan is still doing the exact same thing. And if you're not careful, when your life gets hard, when you're struggling, when you're weak, when you're hurting When life is one trial after another, Satan will whisper in your ear, Why fight it? God doesn't really care about you that much. In fact, He's probably not even watching what you're doing. And He doesn't care about sin. In fact, you'd probably feel better if you did whatever it is that you're thinking about doing, and God knows it. Let me just tell you don't believe the lies. Jesus described Satan as a liar and the father of lies and a couple years ago and I don't remember how the thought came in my mind but it occurred to me from scripture we know about a third of the angels followed Satan a third of the angels that were standing in the presence of God followed the liar that's good lying you take the best liar we have on earth it doesn't compare to that and Peter and Peter is addressing believers who are hurting. And when we're hurting, we're susceptible to thinking God doesn't care. I'm assuring you from the Word of God, God does care. Before the world was even in existence, He knew and planned to send His Son to come into the world at the perfect time, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for your sins. That should motivate us supposed to get our eyes off of our problems and back on Christ. As much as God loved us, we reciprocate with love. And Jesus described it, if you love me, obey my commandments. The fourth motivation is very similar to the third. They build off one another as all these scriptures do. We have four motivations. The fear of God, the price of redemption, the plan of salvation. The fourth is the gift of our Savior. As just the wording of it would make clear, this all comes back to gratitude. Proper perspective, we have to think clearly. But we're reminded again of truths that I was just articulating. Verse 21, who through Him are believers in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God? Jesus appeared in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers. In other words, it's making it clear our salvation comes through Christ. Again, it's all about gratitude. In a sense, this comes back to that idea that we weren't redeemed with silver or gold, nothing so cheap. We weren't saved by our own works. Those are filthy rags. No, we were saved through Him. We understand, but we always need to be reminded, we're children of God only because of and only through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 said, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is part of our being believers. At the moment of our salvation, a transaction occurred. All of our guilt went on to Christ. All of His perfection came to us on our account. We get the credit for living the perfect life He lived He took the punishment for the life we actually lived. But in light of that, we should be motivated to be different. If you're a true child of God, it's only because you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Now that seems so simple, you'd say, well, why in the world do we need you to tell us something so basic? Because there are churches around this country with pastors who are teaching there's other ways. You can call it what you will, the fact remains this is occurring in today's America. There's other ways to God. You hear people claiming to be ministers of Jesus Christ, preachers of a gospel, obscuring the good news, not proclaiming the good news. John 14:6, it's a great verse to memorize. Many of you have. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It describes every false religion out there. Can you find your way to God? Nope. Only through Jesus Christ. Jesus has always been the way of salvation. He always will be. And we should be thankful that we found it. Because it wasn't due to our cleverness or to our great skills it was because God reached down and put his hand on us who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory this is of course talking about the resurrection and then ultimately the ascension of Jesus into heaven over and over and over again you come back to the resurrection it's central it's critical if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead i don't believe you're saved romans 10:9 and 10 that if you confess with your mouth jesus as lord and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you will be saved Now praise the Lord that most of us were saved without a comprehensive knowledge of all the theology that we learned later. I think back on when I was saved and what I did know was I was a sinner. And I heard a preacher telling me someone died in my place. I believed it. But again even in our current world, you have people trying to redefine what Christianity is and they put their own labels on it and they put their own explanations on it and it's a very common thing to deny that Jesus even rose from the dead. Every doctrine precious to believers is under assault. But the fact is, God did raise Him from the dead. As Paul said, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then then our whole existence is pathetic I won't read it First Corinthians 15 12-17 he makes it clear without the resurrection we're still in our sins in fact we should be pitied more than anybody else because we're not only believing lies about God but we've got no hope but it's not just that God raised him from the dead Jesus ascended to heaven where he has been glorified In Hebrews chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Just the beginning of it. It expresses this in great detail. And he is the radiance of his glory. He being Jesus. Talking about in relation to God the Father. He, Jesus, is the radiance of his, God the Father, glory. In the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much better than the angels. As he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus always was God. But when He was walking on the earth, He did not always display the glory. I think on the Mount of Transfiguration, would have been the closest. But the fact remains, after He walked on the earth for 40 days, He ascended into heaven, He now has the glory that was always His. In fact, if we could see into heaven, I think we would see what Stephen, who was martyred for his faith, saw. Acts chapter 7 verse 55, But being full of the Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. God's plan always included glorifying the Son, elevating Him, putting Him in the position of power. In fact, and I don't have it in my notes, thought just occurred to me but if you read what I think are passages that have application as showing the fall of Satan in the Old Testament it seems clear that part of what caused Satan to fall was because he wanted the glory that was due Christ the throne set aside for Jesus Satan wanted to sit on it and it got him kicked completely out of heaven because that's only for Jesus In John chapter 17, Jesus said this at verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Again, these are tied up in the eternal counsels of the triune God. This is God's plan. And this helps us. Number one, because we realize whatever is going on in the world nothing compares to our Savior. He has the glory of God. He is the glory of God. And one day we're gonna have glory like that. Romans eight, sixteen and seventeen says, the Spirit Himself that's Romans eight sixteen and 17. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Sort of thinking ahead one day we're going to be a part of that glory. And so what does that do? the end of the verse so that your faith and hope are in God so many things cause us to be distracted Satan is constantly nipping at our heels our own flesh is pulling at us and dragging us away from sanctification the world is hostile to us and we struggle and we have hardships and in all of that we keep coming back to the simple truths: our faith and hope aren't in this world They're not in our physical bodies. They're not in our earthly circumstances. They're not in our checkbooks, our bank accounts, our retirement accounts. Our faith and hope are always and only in God. And so we should live differently. We should set aside those distractions. We should constantly reflect on what God's done for us. We can trust Him no matter how hard things are. We do have faith and we do have hope. And this is where the body of Christ helps each other because you've been there and I've been there. There are times when it's dark. It really is. And that's when brothers and sisters in Christ come alongside of us and put an arm around us. And if our heads are tipped over, they help us lift up to see the Savior. so we need to obey and we need to live holy, but it's not in a vacuum. It's always in the presence of a God who cared enough about us to send His Son to die for us. Not just for all those other people in the church, but when you look in the mirror, He died for you. I'm going to close this with Romans 8, verses 29 to 31. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I can't fully articulate Your majesty. I can't fully understand it, Lord. But I understand it enough to say thank you. Lord, as I look around and see the faces of my brothers and sisters in Christ, we live real lives. Our lives, unfortunately, aren't just the time we have together on Sunday morning. When we step away from here, life isn't always pretty. We have the struggles of our own hearts and our own flesh. And we have the struggles of those that we interact with. And we have the struggles of our lives. And we have the struggles of our city and our state and our country and our world. And it's easy at times, Lord, to lose sight of you. It's easy at times to get lazy and think, well, none of this really matters that much. I thank you for the reminder of your word this morning, Lord, that it does matter. And that you do care and that you do love us. Lord, we thank you for the promises of your word. At times, we think we can't go on. Help us at those moments, Lord, see and remember truth that you have us in your hand. We're supposed to hold on to you, but Lord, we thank you that you've got a vice grip on us and that nothing can ever snatch us out of your hands. And with that, Lord, we know if you're for us, who can be against us? Lord, in light of these truths, help us to live holy lives, motivated by love for you,